Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Kurt. This is our review of Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, starring Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Directed by Stanley Kubrick, released in 1999 on a $65 million budget, grossed $162 million at the box office. Of course, this is the end of our Stanley Kubrick retrospective. Kurt, we've been at that for several years now, and we're finally wrapping up the 10 films of Stanley Kubrick's that we've reviewed. And this has been one that... uh, well, we've, we've known it's coming, uh, down the line and, uh, we, we've been working around schedules and trying to get this thing recorded for a while. But, uh, this is one, you know, released after Kubrick had already passed away. And, uh, some say he was still editing it. Real surprise, uh, on that. But, uh, his estate has actually come out in recent years and said that, uh, no, this was the finished version. And Tom and Nicole have mostly said that this was pretty much what they thought it was going to be. There've been some monkeying with it here and there. We can talk about some of the CGI underwear that they decided to add here and there as we get into it. But first of all, what's your background with eyes wide shut? Well, uh, I first saw this in the 2007, 2008 block where I was just buying tons of DVDs. And one of the directors I was making it a point to catch up on was Stanley Kubrick. Um, and I did, I didn't know, uh, really anything about this movie, the, or the stories of how it was made. Um, so I knew, I knew, I literally knew nothing, not the genre, not the kind of story. I think I knew Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman were in it. But knowing nothing, it was that pure kind of movie watching that's, uh, totally fresh and without expectation. You know, I don't, you know, you don't get that too much these days. You always go into a movie knowing what the RT, the RT score is and all that. But I didn't know anything other than that this was the final film by Stanley Kubrick. And that, that is enough to like go into it with a certain level of expectation. Yeah. And I mean, gosh, look how long it had been since he made a movie, you know, I mean, he'd spent over a decade putting this together in one way or another. And I knew this was coming out in 1999. I did not see it in theaters. It was at a time when I was, I was in between college and grad school and I just wasn't going to the theater that much. And I, I think I wanted to see it because I was intrigued by the trailer. It's it looked like some sort of horror movie murder mystery. I don't know. Is Tom Cruise walking down a lot of dark alleys and Nicole Kidman looking oddly scared or bored or something? And then that piano just clanging. And I thought, well, God, this this looks good, you know, and I didn't go see it because a couple of friends of mine saw it and said, eh, it's not really worth it. It's a deal. So I rented it some years later. Uh, on just a weekend to catch up on it. Cause I was like, Oh, I finally want to see this thing. And I'd heard all the rumors about it. And I don't know what I expected going in, but I certainly didn't get what I maybe thought the movie was about. And I've only seen it a couple of times since, because it's one of those that I don't know. I always walk away from it with a lot of questions and wanting to have a conversation about it. So I'm glad we're doing it on the show. Even if we had never done the Cubit retrospective, I think one day or another, I would have gotten people together to talk about this because the, the conversation that could typify this is best with this. I'm watching this movie for this review. My wife comes home from work. She sees me watching the last year, 30 minutes of it. (laughs) And she's like, Oh, I've heard about this. Is this any good? And I just pause it and I go, I don't know how to answer that question exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's really the only thing I can say about it. I mean, I, I don't know what to say about this because this movie is, in a lot of ways, it bucks expectations and 
summary because it could be about a lot of things or it could be about nothing. I, I don't know. Yeah, that, and that, that, that is the thing. Obviously, there's a lot of tragedies of, you know, Stanley Kubrick uh, dying because he was certainly not done. He was like he was already planning his next movie with 2001. So but it is a thing. It's like he there are, you can, you got to search for it, but you can find him explaining exactly what he thinks 2001 means and it's a it's a hell of a thing to, to hear that when you actually hear him explain exactly what he thinks the final 10 minutes mean and this is a movie where it's like what if like we never the movie like yeah like you said the movie wasn't even done so we really did not get to hear anything about what he thinks about this movie or even why he got why he chose to do it his wife told him like you know this is one of the books he came across where it's like this is the one that i want to do and his wife said, please don't make this movie. And it's like, apparently she's been okay with everything he's ever done before that, you know, Clockwork Orange, everything else. But for when she read that book, she was like, this is going to be really uncomfortable. Um, and it is because it falls, it falls into that, uh, actually a particular favorite subgenre of mine, which is the dark romance movie. The movies about the relationships that are in a, you know, they're in a pitfall, the ones that aren't working out, like, uh, you know, like Revolutionary Road and Gone Girl and, uh, and Eyes Wide Shut is definitely one of them. Oh, yeah. And I think you, you nailed it. This got sold to theaters and to, to theater going audiences as the erotic thriller, but with Stanley Kubrick. So people walk in thinking, Oh, I'm going to get like a classy basic instinct. And no, that is not, but that's what the trailer would have told you, but that is not what this movie was even concocted to be. And it certainly wasn't what Kubrick was interested in. You're right to nail down something like Gone Girl and Revolutionary Road. And I would even say like Little Children, which the guy that plays sure. Nightingale in this was you know, involved in and things like that. It's much more along that, you know, peel back the curtain on the perfect couple and see how imperfect it oh, all yeah. is and, you know, dark things. And of course there's, I mean, you know, the jokes tell themselves with Tom and Nicole and to mm -hmm. their credit, they both have been incredibly gracious about one another and they're you know, split and all this. Cause they split up two years after this movie and they spent two years making it together. Yeah. And, and you know, to hear the horror stories that they allegedly went through to, you know, do this, um, it's it's funny to watch a movie about a couple having problems when you're watching a couple of people who are married who are actually having problems yeah. and they don't know how to deal with it and then you then you you know you hear and they did 300 takes of this one scene where they had to break down and cry and it's like no wonder Nicole Kidman looks like she's 50 in some of this because at, at my wife noticed her in one scene she's like did did they like wait years between because she looks a lot older. You know, <laughs> this scene, I was like, no, that's probably the 80th take. And she was just done, you know, and crying her eyes out for real. I mean, who knows, right? It's, it's hard to tell, but uh, you know, this, the story that this is about is one that Kubrick had lashed onto way back when, like 30 or 40 years, he held onto this book. And like you say, his wife didn't want him to do it, but he was obsessed with it. This idea of dreams and they become your obsession and what's real and what's not and dealing with all that, you know, the relationship dynamic and trying to tell that story and wrap his, you know, his head around it was something that he obsessed over till he died. I mean, that's the truth of it. And yeah, and yeah, this is a movie that it, uh, like I said, it falls into that dark uh, romance category. And you talk about how this movie was sold as like the, you know, like I, I think it wasn't NC-17, but it was one of those movies where people knew that it was cut down in order to not get an NC-17, which is, 
at the same time, good viral marketing at the, at the same other time, people were probably coming to this for the same reason people go went to see, you know, showgirls or, or like, or basic instinct. But it does kind of defy genre because you could look at it as a romance movie. You could also look at it like, uh, one, one time I watched it, like after watching a bunch of film noir type movies and like this movie yeah. totally fits into a noir category. Like, you know, with a guy wandering around New York and, all these seedy character, uh, re- totally random seedy uh, kinds of uh, uh, guest stars that take over the movie for a little bit, right out of you know uh, your Chandler style uh, stories. Oh yeah, I mean this this movie owes a lot to something like Gaslight, you know, and and mm-hmm. that kind of thing, and even like Night of the Hunter, and you know those kind of movies just mm-hmm. from a different era, you know, and it's very minimalist you know the score is incredibly minimalist i mean well i, I kind of made fun of that clanging piano but i don't know what jocelyn pook did for the score of this movie but bang on about three chords was most of what made it in it and i mean there's you know stories that that was the temp score and that they never got to finish it i don't believe that at all um i think i think kubrick told him no i just want like the saddest weirdest chord you can possibly find okay and, and he just did it over and over again. And I don't know. It's, it, it's, it's evocative and it sticks in your brain. I mean, I'm, I was sitting here before we got on to record about it. I'm actually like humming it in my head, just those, those notes, you know, and those drones and all that. And there's a little bit of Hitchcock in this. I mean, you know, all of that. And it's, it's interesting to see what came out of this. And I guess we can talk about maybe what, once we get into it, what was still there and, and could they have gone anything further? But I guess we got to do a plot summary. I'm going to try this, Kurt. I don't know. We have to fill in some gaps here as we go, but this is the best I can do. So Tom Cruise is Dr. Bill Hartford and his wife is Alice, played by Nicole Kidman. And they live with their young daughter in New York City and seem to have a great relationship in life together. How are things changed dramatically when Alice admits to having sexual fantasies about a man she met once on vacation? Bill spirals from this and even seeks out his own illicit affairs. And that's when he uncovers an underground sexual cult or something and attends one of their meetings. He's quickly out of it at the meeting, but spared when one of the women there intervenes. She later turns up dead and the friend who told Bill about the group goes missing. It's then Bill is told by a wealthy patient of his in a surprise role by director Sidney Pollack, who was at the orgy, that he recognized Bill there and that Bill should heed the warnings that he's seen and been handed to him. And when he returns home, Bill finds the mask that he was trying to hide that he had worn during the infiltration, breaks down and confesses everything to Alice. And the next day, while Christmas shopping with their daughter, Bill apologizes to Alice and she suggests that they should just be thankful that their marriage and passion for each other has survived, at least to this point. But don't say forever because that makes me uncomfortable. And that's about the best way I can summarize Eyes Wide Shut. There's certainly a whole lot that goes on in this, but that's the basic story, I think. So yeah, yeah, that very basic. Cause this is a movie where any plot summary is, you know, it's not going to get the movie across. Cause like that took you maybe 90 seconds. And this is a two hour, two, just under two hours and 45 minute drama with maybe four or five characters. So this is, uh, like almost a plot. I actually just heard, uh, Alec Baldwin was talking about something Scorsese said. He said, if you can remember the plot of a movie, that means it's not good. It's about the moments you remember. <laughs> and this is a movie with moments. Yeah. But the plot is almost like there's a lot, there are, there are plenty of moments watching this movie where you, you easily forget, like, how did this start? Oh yeah. They had a, they were smoking pot and they had a fight. Cause it goes, cause it, sometimes it just goes into these random, uh, left turns where it's like you totally forget about, you know, the marriage and stuff. And it's just about, Kubrick being Kubrick. 
Yeah, it's, it's, I think that's part of the dream motif here, right? That's part of all of this. And I mean, there's certainly intersplices of that. A lot of this hinges off of a dream that Alice has that she tells Bill about and, you know, his responses to it. They're even still talking about dreams there in the end. And some of it's got very dreamlike qualities because I mean, there's that whole bit where he finds out about the girl being dead. And I don't know if you noticed it or not, but if you look at that headline, that headline is doesn't make any sense. It's like poor grammar. It's like if you mm. if you translate something into French and then translate it back into English and it screws up all the verbs, yeah. you know. I mean, and, but it, it keeps going to it. And I'm like, but that's the kind of thing you would see in a dream. So maybe it happened. I don't know. Like there's all, and then Cindy Pollock shows up again. I don't know. Yeah, these. Yeah, this movie is much more like a series of conversations and essays than it does have act breaks and mm-hmm. something to tell you. We talked about in, in Full Metal Jacket. There's really two acts. That's almost like a play. You know, you have. Yeah everything at boot camp, which I argue was the, the film they should have just done. And then you have Vietnam, which was a whole other movie. I mean, it really was a totally different set of people uh, than with, with one guy coming over and then that one other you know little dude that he knew. But this movie is, it's a, it's a handful of people. Most of them, you don't even get to know their names. You know, nothing about them, but almost every scene is Tom Cruise doing Tom Cruise things, except running fastly. It's the only thing he didn't do in this movie that Tom Cruise is known for. And I, I, mean, I don't ding him for that. That's one of his things. My, I even noticed like he does this thing where he like slowly rubs his hand down his face when he's exasperated or tired, which he probably really was doing the scene. But I'm like, Tom Cruise does that in every movie. So it's Tom Cruise doing Tom Cruise things. It's, it's normal. I, I'll, I'll say this now. You know, we've talked a lot through this series, Kurt, about the women in Kubrick films and how they're, often underwritten and underserved by the roles they have. And I got to give Nicole Kidman props for doing a lot with a very little. I mean, she only gets out of the house twice in the whole movie, in the opening party and at the very end to go Christmas shopping. And the rest of the time she's in that damn apartment. Oh yeah. Nicole Kidman is excellent and we'll, we'll get to her, but I definitely have to talk about Tom Cruise because he is a big sticking point for this movie with me is, uh, Tom Cruise is one of my favorite actors. I mean, he's a, he, like, like, he's a, he's a weirdo. There's a, there's a lot of stuff about him where it's like, maybe you wouldn't want to be in the same room with him, whatever. But I know he's one of my favorite actors, mainly known as an action guy. Uh, but he does get some, he, he has some serious acting chops that he's shown off in plenty of movies before this, like Jerry Maguire, Rain Man, Interview with a Vampire, and movies after it, like Minority Report and Collateral. And in, 1999, he had two performances, and one of them was one of his best in, in Magnolia, where it was totally about just, you know, dramatic, you know, acting and his charisma as a performer. But in this movie, I think he's woefully miscast. A, a rare kind of complete mistake uh, by Kubrick is uh, miscast as his character, and uh, he's not the man to be the lead in a Kubrick film. It, and so much of it, it's about... The two of them do not gel well together. Tom Cruise has done, has, you know, he's worked with Scorsese before in Color of Money. If Scorsese made this film, Cruise would come off better. But through the Kubrick machine of a hundred takes and specifically, you know, being driven half mad the way Nicholson was in The Shining, Cruise, he loses almost any and all of the charisma that made him an icon in movies. And he comes off kind of, wooden and certainly not not naturalistic and as to the miscasting you know we we have tom cruise being intimidated by the secret society of a lot of old men and that's a moment where i got a hard time buying that kind of like with full metal jacket 
Kubrick told D'Onofrio to gain weight to play Private Pile. He gained 20 pounds, and Kubrick said, well, great, now you just look like you could kick everybody's ass. And he got much bigger. So with Cruz in this, in a thriller context, I got a hard time believing that Ethan Hunt wouldn't be able to handle all these guys. Because Tom Cruise, he has the chops to do this kind of character, but it just doesn't gel in this movie. Because Bill, I think, is supposed to be an average man, um, which is why Kubrick had a couple other guys in mind uh, that uh, just didn't work, that didn't get together for whatever reason. One of them was Woody Allen, and that would have been a, obviously a very different film. And another one that's a little bit easier to believe is Steve Martin apparently was uh, mm. Kubrick's first choice, which might sound weird to anyone who hasn't seen the film The Spanish Prisoner by David Mamet, which is, I think, the only movie I've ever seen where Steve Martin is totally straight and dramatic, and he pulls it off. It's fantastic. He can absolutely play an everyman type, even if you look at him in like Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, where he's the straight man. It wouldn't have made the kind of money that uh, it makes when you have Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman together. So with Tom Cruise, I'm a Tom Cruise fan, but this to me is, I would even have to say, this might be, I think, his worst performance. Can I tell you, you, you've really nailed something there, and I'm glad you called it out. I love Cruise as well. I find him thoroughly entertaining in the right thing. But there's a few times in his life and in his career when he has tried to step into something that he just couldn't do. And I'm going to bring up another Nicole Kidman movie here, Far and Away. He's horrible <laughs> in that movie. Trying to do an accent and all this farm boy grow. I know they were in love and they just wanted to do something together. He's terrible in that movie. And that movie is awful. And it wouldn't have been better with anybody else either, but he was bad in it. And he's not good in that. Magnolia, he's brilliant in all right. Um, I know this may be, you know, blasphemy to a lot of or blasphemy to, um, excuse me, this may be blasphemy to a lot of Anne Rice fans, but I thought he was awesome as Lestat in what is Big kind time. of a dumb movie, an interview with the vampire. But I thought he was great in that. I loved him. But you know what he what he also is? He's always Tom Cruise. He's a heartthrob. He's a leading man. That's why you couldn't put Brad Pitt in this either. You know, I'm watching Todd Field play Nick Nightingale, the piano player here, and I keep looking at the dude and I'm like, man, this guy could double for Ed Norton, you know? And oh, then yeah. I realized, I was like, no, that's actually wrong. This guy's fine. They could have had anybody play that piano player. They should have had Edward Norton playing the lead. That's who yeah. I like had in my head. I was like, because he can be an everyman. Now, can you imagine the nightmare that that would have been? <laughs> Edward Norton oh, yeah. and Stanley Kubrick. So, <laughs> the movie would have never been done. So no chance. Yeah, no chance. No, but that that said, that's what's so strange is Nicole Kidman is a beautiful woman. Has always been a beautiful woman, but she's not exotic. You know, that's the thing about her. She looks like a normal person. You know, like she can play kind of mousy and normal. She puts on glasses and pulls her hair up, and you're like, yeah, you're a mom that used to work at an art gallery. You know. I mean, she's not a brain surgeon like she played in, you know, uh, Days of Thunder, but she can play, you know, multiple types. And she has throughout her career is what makes her such a, a versatile actress. And she's fine in this. But you're right. Cruz is wrong. And I think part of it, too, and we have to say this, that the dialogue in this movie, Kurt, I, I guess if I want to give it a good analogy, it's like watching a faucet drip the way that it comes out of everybody, including Cruz. And I don't know if that's the byproduct of like the billion takes they did, or it's just he can't get there with it. But I never felt like he nailed a line the entire movie. And there's multiple times when the look on his face is the same look he's got when he's in the firm and he's like trying to run away from Wilford Brimley. 
Oh yeah, for sure. That, that's that's the thing about this movie is there's el- like the movies I compare it to, like you know, Revolutionary Road and Gone Girl, are pretty naturalistic, and they're like the dial of the the good dialogue scenes are like that sounds like a real couple, sounds like real people. A Blue Valentine, same thing, sounds incredibly real. And Coop, like so, this is a story that could be done real, but getting Kubrick to do something that is ideally a naturalistic story. Again, is another maybe that's one reason his wife said you shouldn't. You're not the he's not the you're not the man to do this. It's like this is too. Uh, it's almost like a, a small potatoes for for him as far as uh, characters. It's a it's a you know a bickering couple, and you know this is the guy who just made Full Metal Jacket about the darkness of the human soul and murder and 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 the shining and these you know extreme characters. And that's one thing is that these characters are not extreme. Some of the things that Tom Cruise sees are extreme, but. Uh, it's a pretty naturalistic story. So it's, it's again, it, it, it doesn't gel that well together. Like Kubrick's, his visual style is like he's direct. It's like he's directing The Shining. It's like it has, the, it has the look of his movies. But when, again, when people open their mouths, it's like, this is a movie where I should be invested in, in the, in the relationship and, you know, and uh, thinking about the psychology of couples and stuff. But, uh, it just, it's just, it's, uh, it's a little, it doesn't come off well. And that's why one of the, like, kind of another legend is that Kubrick was not done. One legend I heard is that he flat out watched the version we saw and he said, Oh, no, no, no. And he said, This isn't done. And he was going to, like, wasn't even close to done. It's like, Well, no, I got a couple more passes to edit. And so this is like two thirds to the way done. Who knows? I mean, I, I, I see the scene of, like, uh, that sequence of Tom Cruise and, and the hooker before the sex cult stuff. That's a scene where it's like, I wouldn't be surprised if they would just cut that entire thing out because uh, it's not, you know, that essential. But again, we'll—that's uh, one we'll never know. Yeah, no, you're you're right. I mean, Kidman and and Cruz said they saw this version of it along with like studio executives, you know, a week or so before Kubrick died, and they thought it was beautiful. They also were reminded of the hell that it was for the 400 days they spent shooting it. Not that you know it was awful because they listened. Oh, working with him was great. We just knew going in that it was going to be a lot. And it sort of brought back up like, yeah, that was really stressful. Okay, I'm going to go do like 12 other movies now in the time that it took me to do that. But, you know, I mean, it's they were fine with it. But I, I, Nicole Kimmon in particular has said before that she doesn't really watch her stuff much. Like, And I know a lot of actors don't. They don't really care to. And I, I can get that a little bit. Cruz does, though. Like, he will watch his stuff and critique it. And, you know, because he's... I mean, in addition to being such a you know, venerable action star, he's also the reason those movies work in a lot of ways. He's been executive producing those Mission Impossible movies all along. And he's the reason that franchise has you know, done what it's done and in a lot of ways. So he, he knows what it takes to make a movie that audiences will respond to, not only action-wise, but dramatically, too. And they liked it, but they also said that they didn't think what they saw was going to be the end. And you called out something you know perfect there. There's this whole sequence with this hooker that we have a callback scene later on. And for some reason we need to know she got HIV. And I think we're supposed to be like led down the line that the mysterious cult gave her those results or something to try to scare him. But they don't do, I had to help the movie do that. You know, I don't know that that's there. It's certainly not told to us. The other thing I would say too is, and this is what I think if Kubert was going to tinker with anything, there are multiple times when Nicole Kidman is telling things to us. And the way she's delivering it, it's almost like she knows, and here's the part where they'll just use the audio and they'll cut away and show it. And then they never show it. This movie completely violates the show don't tell rule of 
good dramatic filmmaking. Oh yeah, I see. I see exactly what you mean, and and that which you know, brings us again to Nicole Kidman, who I think in this movie is the total flip side of Tom Cruise's acting in this film, because I think she is astonishing in this. Um, I'm a I am a fan of hers. She's like I, I love Tom Cruise, but uh, Nicole Kidman is a better actor than Tom Cruise is an actor. Like okay. Nicole Kidman, she she can play a down to earth. Uh, you know, normal person, like just, uh, what was it, a couple of years ago, she was in this movie, Boy Erased, where she just plays this, uh, mother and it's mm-hmm. like a, com- a complete every woman. She's, and she's fantastic. And she can be in, you know, uh, Moulin Rouge, where it's the, about, it's literally as over the top as can be. And she's great in that. And she can be in super dark stuff like Dogville, uh, or, where or she, Big Little Lies. If you've seen that, that show that she was in, she's fantastic in that for sure. And, and she, and she's great in this. And, over these pods, we've commented a lot on how women in Kubrick movies get the short end of the stick. The actresses or the characters kind of get shafted a little bit. And uh, Nicole Kidman is, as Alice is, I think, a, a, an exception. I think, uh, I think she feeds very well into the Kubrick atmosphere of characters. Like, I think Tom Cruise maybe doesn't work well in a Kubrick movie, but I think she does. Like, the scene of her talking, like, telling the story of the fantasy she has with the sailor and she's talking so slowly like she's like as though she is like in a dreamlike state or like she's asleep or like she as like they just woke her up to, to tell the story so i'm guessing that is totally an 80th take situation where it's like she ran out of steam and this is her you know just like it, it reduces her to this dreamlike state um, but I think it works really well. And when she's breaking it down in the most painful way possible about how she was interested in another man, it's a, it's a hell of a scene. And it's all because of her. Like Cruz's, even Cruz's reaction, everything, pretty much everything. I just watched a little bit of that scene before this. Almost everything he says is like, that's not what, uh, that doesn't sound like an appropriate response to what he says, or he's, he's acting a little too angry it's like again it like doesn't just doesn't gel as much yeah it's I, don't, like they, I don't know they took versions of things he was reacting to that were reactions to different performances she gave you know and now they don't they don't line up you know what i mean it's it'd be like if you recorded your audio and mine didn't all of a sudden and then i had to go back and try to repeat everything i yeah. thought i said <laughs> and i was trying to react to you and i totally different. i mean that's that's really what it felt like i, I i'm totally with you and i think you you get it in that opening scene i mean that opening bit where they're getting ready for the the christmas party and you just see them kind of going about the home and getting ready and all this other stuff you know and when they go to the party they're only together for like a few minutes she's over there drinking champagne being bored because she doesn't know anybody there either. And the only person he knows there is Sidney Pollack, the doctor. And then he sees the piano player and it's like, oh, I went to med school with that guy, but he didn't, you know, make it or whatever. And so there's that conversation, but you have two totally different things going on. She, you know, he has to go and check out the, uh, young woman who's overdosing on a speedball, you know, Mandy at, with, uh, Sidney Pollack and try to figure out what's going on with that while she's dancing with some, Hungarian or something, <laughs> Kaiser Soze art dealer. I don't know. And, and I mean, I gotta say though, man, like she's, she is, you know, she's playing the little bit tipsy kind of flirty. She's playing yeah. right along to it and then pulls back right at the last second. I was like, they, you, Nicole Kidman is very alluring in this. Whereas you see Tom Cruise with the other two girls that are slithering around him like a couple of cobras. And it looks like him trying to like get away from a couple of, you know, fans that want an autograph. Yeah, little yeah, like yeah, she can like I said, like she she is a better actor than him and she can play she can play real 
and uh and Tom Cruise really can't that's that's like the He's supposed to be like a playboy type, like a like a almost like a Don Draper type. Like I like like when I, I remember for when I first watched it for uh, for when we were originally going to record this, I was watching a lot of Mad Men, and I thought, man, John Hamm would be perfect in this because he's a, he's also a better actor yeah. than Tom Cruise. That's that's a whole thing. This is a role that again really w- would have required a a guy whose primary focus is uh, acting rather than being a movie star. Um, yeah, and I mean, I th- this is the kind of thing that Tom Cruise was trying to do at this time, right? Was to be an yeah. actor and not just be a movie star. And I think it was after this that he just leaned into the "I'll just be a movie star," you know, thing. Because the last twenty years, he hasn't done anything close to this. And you know, I, and that's—I don't blame him. I mean, you find your lane, you do what you do, man. But, uh, but I mean, you know, there's other people that wouldn't work in this either. Like, I think Robert Downey Jr. is a talented actor, but he would be yeah. terrible in this. Like he, he Probably. wouldn't be able to do this. Like you got, you've got to have somebody again that can be that every man, that, that person that we can forget they're a star. You can forget they're Tom Cruise. And even though again, Nicole Kidman is this, you know, huge mega star. She really wasn't at this point. She has become one since, but you can kind of lose yourself in watching her perform and watching her kind of fall into the background. And. I, I don't know. It's it's an interesting way to introduce us to these people by telling us almost nothing about them because we go from that to like there's their daily life and you see him and he's a doctor and he's being the dispassionate doctor where he sees people in all states of you know disarray and undress or whatever and he has no reaction to it whatsoever as a doctor is supposed to and he even cops to that in the conversation later like I, this is the last thing I'm thinking about you know is sex when I'm around people in you know uh, the doctor's office. And then you see what her day is like, which is, I don't know, she's getting dressed and then she's getting the kid dressed and then they're doing some homework and she bakes a cake or something. And like, you can just see like how bored she is the yep. whole time. And and I'm watching this and I'm going, what am I supposed to gain from this, Stanley? <laughs> is that these people are together, but that their lives are going in opposite directions? Yeah, it's, uh, again, this is like, it's it's a weird for like Kubrick trying to make a, such a like a, a, a very low key human drama moment about the mundanity of you know a housewife versus the you know the, the exciting life of a uh, of a doctor uh, and, can, and also the like the, the the pacing of Kubrick is that it, it you know goes on a while so again you, you can be left to wonder what what does it mean but I suppose like the seeing that she's a housewife and that he's a doctor I think it's uh, it's just showcasing how. Like when he's touching this, you know, Christina Hendricks type uh, woman examining her chest. Uh, and then later on when he's, you know, talking about how it's just my job, it's what I do. Uh, it's, it's just showing that, you know, he, he's so comfortable with it and he's really, really, really assuming that uh, his wife understands and will be happy with it. Right. He's assuming a lot of trust uh, that he's, he's probably, he probably doesn't even, he probably never wants to talk about it. He never would, but he'll just assume. It's like, no, she's, she's fine with it. She knows, she knows who I am. Well, and he also says something that really pisses her off. And it's that, you know, men, men are different than women, but you know, as a doctor, I kind of set the man part aside to do my job. And I, you know, and why didn't you worry about that guy I was dancing with? Because I know you and you wouldn't cheat on me. That's how much I trust you and how much I love you, which is a compliment, but I've been married for 15 years. And I'll tell you, that's very much the wrong way to say that. Because it will lead you down the same road where she's like, oh, so I see how it is. The only reason men talk to me is because they want to screw me. And the reason people talk to you is because you're so damn smart and you're a doctor and you're good looking. And so, I mean, it, it's a very 
real fight, but can I tell you it's in the wrong movie? Because you brought up Revolutionary Road. I love that movie because for everybody that loves Titanic and likes the Leo Kate thing, I'm like, go watch Revolutionary Road oh, yeah. and watch those two people claw <laughs> each other's eyes out for two hours. Because you talk about a couple of actors that could get it done. Uh, Leo could do this and it would be, you know, great. I mean, that, that kind of thing would be, it would be different because he can go there and do that. This, I think if she had had somebody else to act opposite of to react to what she was saying, I would buy it more. Right now, it just feels like, again, this really truncated and oddly put together argument that they're having because they never really get like mad at each other. They just look sort of exasperated with the subject matter. They're also supposed the to be rings. high, too. So, yeah. And then the phone rings and then they kind of just end the argument. They don't really uh, uh, pick that up again because. I, like that scene, like I've seen, like in the in really good drama in dramas, you see that scene that they have. You see that scene all the time, um, and uh, I think Nicole Kidman's acting in that scene is terrific. But the writing leaves a little bit to be desired because it's an interesting scene, talking about how, you know, he's assuming, hey, look, it's just it's all clinical. When I touch touch women, there's nothing to it, and you should be okay with that. Uh, and you should just sit there and be a housewife, basically, is what he's saying. And it's about the perception between, look, it's okay for me to do this. And, uh, you know, you don't, you know, like, I, I don't think about other women. You don't think about other men. And that's, you know, that's where the, that's where it comes together. And we get into the perception between uh, men and women uh, and their uh, desires, shall we say. And uh, it, it reminds me of when I was uh, watching it last uh, one, I think it was one of the writers of the, the Sopranos. It was either Terrence Winter or Matt Weiner. I can't remember who it is, but one of them went on to make Boardwalk Empire. One of them went on to make Mad Men. But they said, making The Sopranos, there was a scene, uh, there was a storyline involving Carmela cheating on Tony. Uh, and an old school TV writer who was either working on the show or he was a friend of them on the show. And he said, he said, I can't explain it, but you can have the husband cheat on the wife a thousand times and the audience will still like them. If you have the wife cheat one time on the husband, the audience will hate them forever. He said, I can't explain it. I don't know what that is, but it's a, it's just, it's just the way it is for whatever reason. And, uh, in the, in, in the case in this movie, it's actually a, a very similar scene to the best scene in all the Sopranos where Carmela tells Tony, it's the exact same scene, except much better acted and written where she says, I've been fantasizing about this guy for a year and they didn't, you know, they didn't even touch each other, but the fantasy, the fantasizing and the desire for another guy is what breaks them apart. It's yeah, the thing I, of Bill being made to think he wasn't enough for Alice, even for one moment. And it makes him snap and go on this sexual odyssey in New York, which is kind of a, you know, bit of a childish reaction, really. Oh yeah, it is, and that, that's I mean, to, before we get to that. Like I, I would put up as an example, if you want to watch a couple of actors who are having marital problems go at each other and really sell it, go watch Donald Sutherland and Mary Tyler Moore and Ordinary People. Robert Redford directed the hell out of that movie, and it's an amazing film, and it's a really hard one to watch. You'll walk away from it very, very sad. You know, spoiler alert, but you'll also walk away realizing you, you got to have a couple of actors like that that can pull that stuff off you know, and, and do this. And, you know, you, you brought up another one. That's a great example of the Sopranos. You know why people hated Skylar white on breaking bad. It's that one episode where she finds out and she just tells Walter to go flip off. And she kind of does her own thing for a little bit. And everybody turns on her when we should be rooting for this poor woman. 
you know, her husband is the yeah. myth king of Albuquerque all of a sudden, but everybody hated her. Why? Because she turned on the main character and it's uh, women don't get that. And I think that's the statement that is part of the undercurrent of this movie, but it's not really put together right. Is that men can go do and uh, Nicole Kidman, Alice says it. men can go do whatever they want and stick it in every hole they can find. Women do one thing and all of a sudden we're whores, we're tramps, we're worthless. Yeah. And that's very true. I mean, that's a, that's a, you know, sexist society that we, we still live in that today. I mean, that's just part of it. And to, I love that she does that. His reaction to it, though, you're exactly right, is like a college sophomore's reaction to that. Yeah. So, well, fine then. I'm going to go and find yeah. a hooker and I'm going to go <laughs> talk show about peanut oil playing buddy and he's going to tell me about a weird sex cult. I'm just going to go. <laughs> I mean, because yeah, that's what happens. I mean, that, in the next two nights, this doctor yeah. blows what I counted up to be about a thousand dollars in cash on all <laughs> kinds of just random shit. <laughs> it doesn't amount to anything, but almost gets him killed and maybe gets his daughter abducted. We'll talk about that in a while. But <laughs> I mean, like, I don't I don't understand his reaction to this. But it leads me to another thing, which is another theory about this movie is everything that happens to Bill a dream. Could he just be having a nightmare reacting off of what his wife told him? That, that is one way to look at it. It's the 2001 thing where it's like it's, it is kind of up to the viewer uh, where it's like because some of the things that happen in this movie are so surreal where it's like if they told you that was a dream, you'd believe it. But I, at least the way that I got it, the way I was watching it, I think everything we see happen in this movie uh, actually does happen, that the dangers are real and the surrealism is just, you know, is just that surreal i mean the uh so yeah, i i think that uh, what we see actually does happen so let's let's just real quickly everything that happens to bill after the phone rings all right in the middle of this argument with his wife where he is sort of high by the way and he's going to go practice mm -hmm. medicine so he goes to a patient's house who's just died and the patient's daughter tries to seduce him before thomas gibson from criminal mind shows up um and so that that happens. Then he leaves and he meets Domino, the prostitute, and they have a very sensual encounter. It's about to get going. Then Alice calls him again and he's like, I'm, I'm not going to be able to go through this he pays her. And he walks away. Then he goes to meet Nick at the jazz club. He's just finishing up his set. He disses his band. And they get into the discussion about, eh, you got to go and you know, I'm going to play this thing. It's really weird. You got to have a costume and here's a password and whatever. So Bill goes to a costume shop then run by a Russian mobster or something who <laughs> I think is pimping out Lily Sobieski at one time or another. I'm not really sure what goes on. She shows up in her underwear, says something really weird to Tom Cruise. It's very uncomfortable. Um, and then he goes, takes a taxi to the mansion out in the middle of nowhere gets in with the password and then we'll talk about all the weirdness that happens there. But that's everything that happens to bill in about four hours. And that's a hell of a night. It is. And that chunk, this chunk of the movie, like up, up to this point the you know, it's been this relationship story. And then the movie kind of, it totally changes gears and turns into this, uh, a little bit of a noir mystery, you know, journey in, in, in New York city uh, or London. Uh, I should say doubling. Yeah, for yes, because only York. Stanley Kubrick would spend millions of dollars to recreate New York City in London, but he could have just shot in New York. But whatever. That's right. And um, and one thing I like about the, the, again, one of it's probably my favorite part of the movie 
is I love movies that do this, that take place. Sometimes it's a whole movie. Sometimes it's a chunk that take place uh, after hours, like literally like mm-hmm. Scorsese's movie after hours where or in collaterals like this too, where you get that sense of it's like, you know, there's, there's, there's 10 PM to midnight, but then there's midnight to 5 AM. You know, there's that feeling of like, there's a feeling that 3 AM has. And this chunk of the movie definitely has it. this, like, where you know, you could like everyone is everyone with, you know, common sense should be asleep right now, getting ready to go to work. And he's, <laughs> he's going to a costume shop to get a mask all and again, with this childish, like frat boy thing, all with the event is I'm good with this, like, I'm going to get laid tonight. Uh, we're like, you know, this is like, it's supposed to be an educated man. Uh, like there's so many times where he should like snap out of it, but, uh, he doesn't. That's all. That's the whole thing about this character is like getting Tom Cruise. This is probably the most unlikable guy Cruise has ever played. He's played a hitman where he tried, you know, where he's tried to kill the hero of the movie and, you know, in collateral, he's played villains before. But even in this, I'm like, he's a jerk. Yeah. And like, it's weird. It's weird seeing him play a, a, jer- a jerk. He's a total self-obsessed jerk. That's the yeah. thing. So what you realize about Bill is that. He is so self-confident and also so assured that, well, my wife would never cheat on me. How could she find anything better than me? That's really what he's saying in that. Yeah. And that's what pisses her off, too, is because she hears that as well. And then he goes and he tries to step into that world. I'm reminded of that that scene in Batman Begins. Um, what's the guy's name? Tom. Uh, you know, what I'm talking about. He played the 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 mafia guy. Um, uh, Tom Wilkinson. Yeah. So. There's that scene in Batman Begins where Tom Wilkinson has Christian Bale in that little, you know, seedy cafe or whatever. And he gives him this whole bit about like, don't come down here and act like you're one of us and that you understand this because your mommy and your daddy got shot and all you're not a part of this world and you never can be. And the flip side of that is, is instead of going into the underworld, Bill gets involved in like the upper elite can wipe you out in a half a second and not even blink (laughs) about it type of people. (laughs) And it, you know, it's, he's a rich man and he's got money to blow, but he ain't got that kind of money. It's, it's weird to watch somebody who thinks they have power. Then all of a sudden have no power. And I got to say, Kurt, like for me, this like 30, 40 minutes of the movie is the best part of the movie. It's the movie. I wanted them to just build the movie around. And then they, they don't because it's, it starts the mystery. I'll give you your slow burn build if you can deliver on the mystery part and this would have been a cool who done it, what happened, all that wake up the next day, but then it just kind of dissipates into some existential sociology or something. But yeah, what, what happens with him here is it's mind blowing. Like the, the shift in gears to go from that costume shop again, where I don't know what's going on with this two like Asian men and they're in like pale face and, they're undressed more than Lily Sobieski is, but she is clearly like 15 or something, which is, this is all kinds of Lolita. Again, I'm having that Big weird time. feeling. Yeah. And then we go to the party and all of the madness that happens there. Yeah. Um, I just lost my, oh yeah, I just lost my train of thought there. Yeah. The movie, again, after Nicole Kidman exits the movie for this chunk, the movie shifts tone big time. Like that, the scene in the piano bar, uh, with Todd Field, who, like you said, directed uh, Little Children and another movie with two of the best films of the 2000s, which is Little Children and uh, In the Bedroom, which is a, which is its own movie that deals with, a, you know, about a relationship. Um, uh, you know, that guy special. I wish that guy would make another movie. It's been it's been too long. But um, that's the scene of him describing this bizarre 
very awkward gig of like, I sit there with a blindfold on and they just tell me to play piano for three hours. And that's all I do. And he, I, he's a, he's a pretty good actor. That guy. I've, I think it's the only time I've ever seen him act. Yeah. I haven't seen, I haven't seen anything else too, but I looked up and he's done a lot of things and I'm like, I'm with you. I'm like, make another movie because your movies are, are really great, but also get more gigs acting because you're actually pretty good as a side man. Like you're, you can do, he's got that again, that Edward Norton kind of thing going on and Edward, maybe even Edward Burns a little bit, you know, he can just be the, sure. the friend, you know, and I, but I love the way he's trying to describe this to his friends. Like I got a wife and four kids in Seattle, but I got to go where the gigs are. So I'm here in New York playing piano at all these <laughs> random things and they pay me good. And, Eh, you know, I don't know nothing, but you know, my mask slipped the last time and I saw all these beautiful hmm. women. It's unbelievable, man. And it's almost like he realizes like, I probably shouldn't have told you that because I can tell you're really weird and horny right now. And this yeah. is not going to go well for you. Yeah, he thought it just like, this is, you know, this is a funny story that happened to me. He doesn't realize Tom Cruise is on a mission uh, that Tom Cruise again, like, yeah, can, yeah, he, can I talk about that for just a sec? Just to interrupt for just a second there. Sure. Tom Cruise is on a mission to get laid. Do you realize how absurd what that statement is that he has to go to find that or that yeah. he thinks he does. Like that's another reason that he's totally miscast in this because we've already seen that women just, just coil around him at all times. Like that's the problem is he can't avoid that. Like, that, that doesn't work. Like I can't narratively make that leap in my head that yeah. the people are not going to throw themselves at him. If he just walks into, if he can walk into like a nice bar, you know, and pfft, done right but not he doesn't have to go to the illuminati orgy cult <laughs> to find some yeah that, that, that's yeah that's a little bit of a it's like a movie logic thing is like in reality nobody would react like that like oh, i'm gonna get laid i'm gonna go, go out and cheat tonight but because it's a movie he's like he he's doing this very quickly it's like he just talked to his wife you know two hours ago and he's like he clearly that it clearly messed him up so much that He's, he completely changed his worldview. He does, that's a big thing about this guy. And he figured, he, luckily, he figures this out by the end of the movie that he doesn't know what he wants. He thinks he knows what he wants. He thinks that, you know, oh, my, you know, my wife has these seedy thoughts. That means, uh, I should react in kind. And, uh, I was just watching, uh, uh, Succession, which was a great show. And there's a great scene there where, excuse me, where, uh, the character Tom, Matthew McFadden's character, he is about to get into this three-way situation with his wife and he reaches this moment where he's like, you know what? I just kind of realized I, I thought I want that. I just, I, I don't, I'm just more of a normal guy. And, uh, I guess, and, uh, and, yeah. and I, and I guess you're not. And luckily Tom Cruise figures that, figures that out. But, uh, before he does, he goes to, uh, you know, Wayne Manor out there <laughs> in, uh, wherever that is in, in New York state to yes. this. This bizarre scene, this, this, this scene at the mansion, which is again, you talking about how I think any other movie would either start here or end here. And it is pretty strange to have the most in the Kubrick sense. Like this is like, this is like if the over everything that happened in the Overlook Hotel was in just in the middle of a movie. This is like, uh, you know, like, cause it's such a huge thing. It's, it's one of the things you remember the most when the movie's over. And it's just this little offshoot in the middle, like almost, almost like the costume shop. It's like, there's the scene of the costume shop, we move on. There's the scene at the mansion, and we move on. Whereas, you know, that everything that happens in that mansion is, you know, that's where the movie gets big. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's also style. the only part of the movie, Kurt, that looks like a Stanley Kubrick movie. I'm sorry, the rest of this yeah. movie could have been shot by 15 other people and looked the same. It could have been shot by Sidney Pollock in work, you know, honestly, yeah. or Todd Field, for that matter. But the part of the mansion is definitely Kubrick. 
and not just because it's pervy and weird, but that's definitely part of it. But it's also the way that it's done. And I'm just going to put the cards on the table now. This is the most unsexy movie with the most naked people I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> like, I, I can't think of another one that is less titillating and set up to be that way. Like it teases you with the, you're about to see everybody completely naked for doing all manner of, you know, uh, Caligula in this yeah. thing. And you watch it and you're like, yeah, I didn't really do anything. You know, like you, you watch a movie <laughs> like basic instinct. That movie's cheesy as hell, but it's also incredibly erotic and it's built to be that way. You know, and it, all the music works for it. This one has this droning, murderer piano going on while you've got all these people in masks walking around and i, I gotta ask which version of this did you see because i've seen a version of it where everybody was totally naked and the, the one i watched for this like they had cgi'd underwear on a lot of people and also cgi'd some people in front of things too so there's a couple different versions of this running around yeah well see i'm, I'm not sure which one which one i saw i mean every version every version of the, that section of the movie is pretty seedy but from what i understand yeah there's like a, there is an NC-17 probably European cut out there where you see everything, but for America they CGI'd and put in put in people in the yeah. way of of uh, of some of this stuff. And even with that, it's like you know it is it, it is pretty uh, uh, it's it is very it's extreme. It's like you know it's like some of the stuff in the Clockwork Orange. Like it's, it almost yeah. reminds me of that scene of when he's on the stage in front of the naked woman and he you know in the in the, the 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 process makes him unable to touch her. And, you know, even though it's a naked woman, it's like the last thing, like the last thing on your mind is, you know, oh, this is, this is sexy. It's like, no, this is, this is, there's, this is wrong. <laughs> well, and th and that's the thing is he's talking about how when he's with naked women and he's a doctor, the last thing on his mind is sex. And he goes to a place where the only thing on his mind is sex. And at no time is he ready to be with any of these people. He looks so, no. I mean, give, I'll give Cruz credit for one thing underneath that mask. All you've got is his eyes. And he does some really like, what the hell am I looking at mm -hmm. with my eyes through, throughout this? And it's, it's well done. It's probably the best acting he does is when they finally call him out on it. And there's that, the woman that keeps coming to him to tell him, like, you need to get the hell out of here. Yeah. This is not for you, which we find out later is Mandy, the, the girl that was overdosing. But, you know, when they call him out and in front of the grand poobah or what the hell ever the red coat guy is, Emperor Palpatine, um, <laughs> there. And they're like, tell us what the second password is. And he's trying to make shit up. And we find out later that there wasn't one. Like that's, that's actually Cruz's best stuff. And I'm like, Oh, this is where the tension rises. And they throw him through the trap door. And now he's got to survive the last half of the Vincent Price movie that this is supposed to be. But no, he just gets back in a cab and leaves. And I'm like, that's the problem is the, the, the movie that I think I want this thing to be and that I think it really wanted to be too. It, goes completely away from and now becomes again existential sociology for an hour yeah yeah it is but in that section is that that scene where they say could you just come with us please and you think maybe he's going to be talking to one person and it is it's the best shot in the movie it's in the top five shots in any kubrick movie it is every time i watch it it's like it makes me like it takes my breath away when he walks into the room and it's got to be like, I don't know, 200 people all in their masks, every single one of them looking right into the lens, looking at Bill with that piano music. It is one that is one of the I don't know if, if scary is the word, but it's like that is just so it's like you feel like they're looking at you. It's like like it's like it's a hell of a POV shot. Not every POV shot nails it like that. But that is like that is. Like that's it, that's un that's unforgivable because it's pretty it, it, and it sets up the tone of that scene of like well this this can't be good 
I mean, it's akin to Shelley Duvall walking into the, the ballroom and all the dead people turned around and toasting her. Oh, you yeah. know, like it's the same kind of just ear. It's eerie is what it is. And it's supposed to make you unsettled. And I'm like, oh, finally, we've got the tension in this movie where it needs to be. And it's going to it's going to get re- I mean, it's already gotten weird. Now it's going to get, you know, freaky. And it's, how's he going to survive this? And then I realized, wait a minute, Tom Cruise can murder everybody in this room <laughs> with, with that mask and, and that cape because they're all old. <laughs> like Sydney, he would kill Sydney Pollack. If he hit him yeah. and probably Ember Palpatine sitting there too. I don't know who that is, but that's just assume, I assume that's who that is. And, and I'm like, well, what's happening here? And it's, it's also, there's that whole thing where Mandy, who we find out later says, no, I'll take his place. Right. And we, we get revealed later by Sidney Pollock that like, they just, you know, screwed her a lot and then sent her home and she just overdosed on her own naturally. And I'm like, am I supposed to believe that? Cause I kind of believe it. I mean, in some way, I sort of believe Sidney Pollack and his explanation for this. Well, that, uh, that, that's the thing about that, uh, that last scene with Sidney Pollack is, uh, it could either be he's telling the truth or that he's in on the cult and he's just trying to make him stop and be like, no, they're, they can be even worse than this, but I'm just trying to get you to stop. Cause the, they're, they they do keep a little bit of the mystery going with that cult. My favorite, I think, my favorite part of the mystery of the cult is where uh, uh, Pollock is you know is explaining everything, saying, "I you know I was there." And this it's very two thousand one when he says, Pollock says, "You know, even if I told you their names, and I'm not going to tell you their names, you wouldn't believe me." And like that's so much better than if he said, "Oh, yeah. you know, you the the head of Coca Cola was in there, and the mayor of New York just yeah. let the audience run wild. Like maybe the president was in there, and we don't know." Or you know the uh, the you know the cardinal of New York or or whatever. In 1999, like, Bill Clinton might have been in there. Uh, yeah, that, that's a that's a real possibility, <laughs> Kurt. So um, that's not too far to think about. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, yeah, it's so it's so again that that scene has so much potential to lead us into a really interesting third act, but it doesn't. And and I, I'm just gonna say it like it's it's the same. I feel like I'm at the same point in Full Metal Jacket where Vincent D'Onofrio kills himself, and then all of a sudden Joker's in Vietnam, and I'm like, oh, that wasn't the movie I wanted to watch. Now, <laughs> you know, and now I have to go watch Bill be weird and confused, and he finds Alice sleeping, laughing, and he wakes her up, and then she has to tell me about this dream where she's having sex with the naval officer and other people. And we've seen him like cut away and have like fantasies of, I think the Hungarian became the naval officer or something. And he's just screwing her on the bed and these blue tones. I don't want David Lynch shit. That is, but it's happening in his head. Right. And he's just sort of like, okay, I had a weird night. I'm just not going to talk about anything. And now we get to watch him try to unravel everything. And really what he's trying to do is just, I just want to like return this costume and just forget all this. This is a bad idea. Let's just, let's just move on. And then that's when the movie just gets absurd and strange because the costume situation is different now. Cause th- I do think like the guy was mad at the two Asian men with his teenage daughter, but now he's pimping them out to her. I, what, what was that? Yeah, that's, yeah, it gets a little inconsistent and a little, uh, it definitely gets bizarre. It's like, it's, it's tough to, it's tough to take seriously some of the stuff. Cause it's like, like the, if that scene, the first scene in the costume shop is like something, it's like a comedy, uh, comedy scene out of Lolita. And then when it's like all of a sudden the offers here <laughs> to, to Tom Cruise, it's like, you know, it's just like, it, it well, I, I do like that bit because it, it reinforces this, the, uh, this, 
awkward thing of of uh, a message in the movie of Tom Cruise really realizing uh, where he belongs, and he like he thinks mm-hmm. he wants this, you know, this Gotham City, you know, perverse sexual thing, and he realizes, oh, this is, you know, I was I was so wrong. Um, and uh, that, that is kind of the message of the movies. And when, when it's all over, he it's like you know, it's it's no, there's no place like home. It's it's the Dorothy yeah. Gale realizes, oh no, I was, you know, that was it. Really, it should have just stayed a fantasy. Yeah, exactly. So, some fantasies are best left as that, and also unspoken. Because he leaves there, he goes looking for Nick at the hotel. He finds out that he got beat up and sent back on a plane or something. And, uh, you know, he's starting to try to figure this out. He does. There's that one great return though. He goes back to the mansion, you know, in the daytime. And then that car just rolls up and hands him that letter. And I'm like, Oh no, that was well done. Like this again, the rest of the movie should be him skulking around that mansion, trying to figure out what the mystery is Sherlock, but he never goes back. (laughs) He's just like, okay, that was, that was odd that Alfred drove up here to give me that, but okay. Yeah. Oh yeah, I I like I like that part of the movie where of the with the threat of of the cult. Like yeah, that scene like that super long it's it's like it's like Kubrick pacing. It takes him a long time to walk up and hand him that letter and it's a long time for Cruz to actually open it up. But then uh, I can't remember what it says, but basically it's, it's yeah. something like, you know, please stop all of your inquiries which are yeah. completely useless and you know or else this is going to get a lot worse for you. I hope this morning and last night's will sub you know, subdue you now or whatever oh yeah yeah i mean but i remember that part about like just forget all your completely useless inquiries and that's what Sidney pollock does reinforce to him he's like you think you can play in this world but i promise you my friend you are way out of your league you have no idea what you've stepped into and you need to just not like just just turn around and walk away he needed to be like his friend nick was up until he told him about it was just put the blindfold on play for three hours take your money and go home don't yeah. don't ask, don't tell, don't know nothing. You get told the address when you need to know it, you know. And uh, he, but he doesn't because again, he's curious. He's got to figure this out. So he goes back to Domino, and I, he bought her some donuts or something. I, that was weird. <laughs> but but then his roommate, the, her roommate Sally, is there, and they have like this. I, you talk about like came out of nowhere. You know, he's got his hand up her shirt and she's all into it. And she's like, I need to tell you some bad news. And then the whole HIV positive test for Domino. And he's just like, hmm, okay. Well, that's uh, like the look on Tom Cruise's face is like showstopper. You know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, right now. And I'm like, well, I guess that's one way to turn somebody down. That's a cold shower for sure. You know, but I, I'm with you. That whole, like the whole version, like she doesn't even need to exist. That should cut her yeah. out from the other scene and cut this out too. Cause you don't need it. Cause if he just leaves there and goes and gets followed by that guy on those empty looking streets, that's plenty enough tension because we don't know who, you know, the equalizer following him is. It looks like Dr. <laughs> Loomis or something in the background. But yeah. it's, it's great though, but it's really well done. And I'm like, okay, this is getting weird. And he finds the newspaper. And then again, that bizarre headline about beauty queen hotel drugs overdose. And it's like, but that, that, <laughs> like that's not in the right order. And I, and I, but they kept showing it so much. So I'm like, well, okay, Kubrick doesn't do stuff for no reason. Is that trying to tell me that some of this happened, but this is Bill's at home now and he's having a weird ass dream about the night before? I don't know. It could be because, again, the idea of it being a dream would it, it, it could work because uh, only in a dream could Tom Cruise be this ineffectual in a in a thriller situation like uh, 
Because yeah, like, I, for, like uh, it makes me think of like you know the secret society in in John Wick mm. or something. Like if this was any other movie, it would be about that secret society and there'd be a gunfight in that mansion or something. But this, you know, it, it, the movie it, the movie doesn't even go that far with the the thriller stuff, which is too bad because because when it does, it's really good. Like that, yeah, that bit where the guy is standing under the streetlight and they get that piano score going. Like that's another one of the sh- that that's the other shot that comes to mind when I think of the spookiness of of Kubrick the, the the shot of two hundred people looking at the camera and the shot of that one guy looking at him because yeah. you know it gets your mind going of like when where what is this what where is this going when when this guy eventually you know uh, catches up with him right the whole intimidation bit or at least the Bill's interpretation that these people are trying to intimidate me they're trying to scare me they're trying to push me away and I don't want to know and you're right the the last part of this movie should be him trying to figure out about this cult. And you may say, why would a doctor investigate that? Doctors have investigated worse things. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original one, is about a doctor investigating. I would have gone with that, and it would have totally worked. Maybe not if they were alien pods, but in this case. But, I mean, really, it. I would have gone with him trying to uncover this mystery, and then there being fallout to it. But there, there really isn't. It's all empty, and it's almost like you could think it's in his head. That's why I give... The when he finally winds up back at Ziegler's place, which is is uh, Sidney Pollock's character here, and one of the things he lays on him is that like, look, maybe everything you saw that looks like a threat was a charade. These are just really powerful people that don't want you to like blow their sex cult, you know, cover. Or maybe they're the kind of people that would kill you for no reason. Who knows? You don't want to find out, do you? Like that would have been could have been much more eerie. The problem is it's it's two guys in a room with a pool table and it's all flat lines. Yeah, it is. In fact, that that scene, every time I think of Sidney Pollock in that movie, I think of that scene because Sidney Pollock was not the first person cast in that role. Uh, the first person cast in that role was uh, Harvey Keitel, who would have been just fine because oh, wow. he's a very similar type to yes. Sidney Pollock and he would have been just fine. Apparently, on the first day, it might have been that pool scene, but uh, Keitel... On the first day, they got to 80 takes, and Keitel just looked at Kubrick and said, you're out of your fucking mind. And he just quit and walked <laughs> off the movie immediately, and they replaced him very quickly yeah. with, uh, w- with Sidney Pollack, who I thought, who I think is really good. Uh, he's a really uh, terrific character actor. I mean, he's an Oscar-winning director, but I, I, I prefer him as an actor. Because like, if you, you need a guy who's like, you know, you need, you need a guy who's like, is a, take one look at him. It's like, he's a doctor. He's a rich guy. He's a lawyer. Like, yeah. like you, you, one look at him in Michael Clayton, you don't need any backstory. You can just, he's in that office. He's the man. Um, you know who else would have pulled this off? It would have been a little weird to do in 1999, probably a little early for him. Maybe I'm putting him a few years ahead, but like you get a guy like George Clooney to do this. He could pull that sure. off and make it, make it, make you feel like, Oh, I don't want to cross that guy at all. You know, like he could be For the sure. rich, powerful kind of guy that has some stuff going on on the side that maybe you don't want to ask more about. Oh, I, no, better yet. I've, I've got it. Michael Douglas. Look at Michael Douglas, and that scene is gold, and he probably wins an Oscar for it. Oh, yeah. Because it is, I, I actually, I do like that scene. I, I, cause it's like it's playing off the, uh, it, it does go on a while. And I don't remember Tom Cruise really saying too much during that scene. So Sidney Pollock, 
I mean, I can almost see why an actor would get sick of and want to quit during that scene because it's like it's very it's very calm, even keeled. No, it like doesn't raise his voice. It's like I, you know, but uh, I think Sidney Paul he does a good job. He, he does. The problem with the scene is not the what the what he's delivering and how it's done. It's how it's paced together. It's mm-hmm. so uneven. Like honestly, you needed somebody to pace this like a Law and Order scene. You know, the way when they're, they're finally, the bad guy's finally telling you everything that happens in every one of those. You know, so you need one of those. You need somebody that can do that. Scorsese could have done that. Redford could sure. do that. Sidney Pollock could do that. Stanley Kubrick doesn't know how to do that. I mean, he just never has. Like the, in any of these movies we've, we've done, Kurt, there's never been that kind of scene that he's directed where somebody tells you everything. Like the only thing close to it is what Vincent D'Onofrio is ranting and raving in the bathroom uh, yeah. at Arlie Ermey. And that's like two seconds. You know, that's, it's not enough of this where you've got somebody to do exposition dump the way Sidney Pollack has to here. And he basically has to carry the scene because again, Cruz is just there to react to all of it yeah. and to be like, is this real? What is going on? And uh, he plays it coy first. And then he realizes like, well, this guy obviously knows. So I can't lie anymore. Yeah. And that, that again, this, there's no tension in a scene that's supposed to be full of it. And that's also the other thing is like the score is just, why not, why aren't you banging that damn piano behind it the whole time in that scene and ratcheting up that tension? Yeah. Like I said, any, this, any other movie, like, you know, like, like Knives Out has a very similar scene. And in, in Knives Out, you know, when Daniel Craig is laying out the whole mystery, we're, it's a montage. We're seeing everything mm-hmm. he's talking yes. about where we don't see a thing. It's, a, it's a play. It's, we're yeah, just seeing. You're exactly right. It's another one of these damn show, show don't tell sins that yeah. this movie creates where like cut away and show me this or show me what Bill is interpreting this as even like show me Tom Cruise's face and then show me something. And then I, I can as a film goer and watcher go, that's what he's imagining. And then go back and show Pollock telling something and show another cutaway. That's very different version of it. And you see, this is what Sidney Pollock is trying to sell you. Show me that stuff. And maybe we would have got that. I don't know. None of it's ever been shot from anything I could read, but you're right. This movie comes off more like a play. The problem is, is in a play and you're, when you're watching people on stage, the actors are engrossing you with the way they're delivering lines and they're working off of each other and you're watching fresh take. You're not watching the 80th take versus the 30th take. And that's why that doesn't work in a movie. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, this movie, yeah, if they quick, again, Alex Scorsese, he would have quickened the pace, uh, uh, it would have been a very energetic, uh, a scene, cause it is, it's the climactic scene where all is revealed or, or not revealed. And it has, you know, it's, it's that Kubrick pacing where that makes me wonder, I'll, I wonder if that rumor is true that Kubrick wasn't done editing this, cause I, I want to think he, he might have tightened it up a little bit. I mean, something, anything, because there are cutaways in this movie. There's a lot of times when, yeah. when, especially when Bill is riding in taxis or he's sitting at his desk, what is he thinking about? That sailor screwing his wife. You know, he's <laughs> thinking about that constantly. Can't get it out of his head. So having cutaway thought bubbles, if you will, would have worked in this. And I, I almost feel like a lot of the line readings, again, are actors realizing it's not going to be in my face anyway. So it doesn't matter what I do with it. And don't come to find out like, Oh crap, they kept the camera on me the whole time. You know, like I didn't know. And <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't ding any of them for it. Uh, other than Cruz, who I think again, we have talked about was miscast in this and it just didn't work. I, I do got to give props to the one person, Julianne Davis that plays Mandy. When he goes to see her body in the morgue, that's a good like four minute shot of him. Like, am I going to lean over and kiss her? 
very, yeah. very slowly. And like, if she's breathing, she is doing it in the most subtle oh, way. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, props to you, girl. Like that is not easily done. It's good. Yeah. It's good corpse acting. That's that, that scene does go on a while. Yeah. And, and, and if there are cuts in it, I can't see them because it's yeah. two shots. It's her laying out and then Cruz standing over her and slowly moving forward. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it is the slowest. Maybe I'll kiss your forehead. Maybe I won't moment. I mean, it's really weird because it's almost like he's like, I need to thank this woman because on one level, I think maybe she gave her life for me, but I'm going to find out in 10 minutes that now she was just a drug addict. And like I told yeah. her this was going to happen, which is totally believable, by the way. And that's the other thing, too. I'm like, usually when the bad guy is laying it out for you and he's giving you a version that's bullshit, you can realize like, oh, well, see, now you've, you've gone too far and it's bullshit. But everything Sidney Pollock tells him, I'm like, no, that that's actually really believable. It's more believable than what Bill thinks this is. Oh, yeah, it's. uh yeah, it's 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 relatively small. Yeah, it's relatively small potatoes. Yeah, I mean, these are really rich people that realize you were you know, going to blow the lid off of their thing, and they're like, you know what? Let's just scare the hell out of this guy, and it worked. And I'm sure when he left, they're like, holy shit, that worked. So you know, like, yeah. well, let's remember that next time for the Halloween party. I mean, really, like <laughs> I could believe that, and because he's enough of a doof to buy it. Anyway, he thought he could just roll in there and act like, well, I'm just going to walk from orgy to orgy room. Notice no one else is doing that, by the way. That's what gave you away, moron. You're being yeah. a voyeur. <laughs> Everybody else like st- knows where to be. <laughs> like that's this. Yeah, if you're going to infiltrate the place, like try to blend in. Don't stick out so much, Anakin. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's very I don't know. It's uh, it's so off putting and weird. But then he comes home, and I'll, I'll I'll ding this movie for this right now. They should have never shown us that shot of the mask laying on the bed next to the cold came in before he sees it, because the, when he opens the door and like he goes home and he's like, okay, I'm gonna have a butt heavy and I'm just gonna go to bed. All right, we've all had those days. All right, yeah. And he go when he walks in that door, that should be the first thing we see is his face. And then you look down at the pillow and there's the mask and she's laying there. But the, they blow that before he yeah. ever walks through the door. And I'm like, no, you just screwed your own tension. Yeah, it's like they yeah, they blow the punchline. Like you know, it's like uh, the original shot in in Jaws where apparently like the head and the the head Ben Gardner's head in the boat. The original shot was. We find we come down. The head's already there. They yeah. reshot that, so no, the head needs to pop out and gets you know the biggest scare in the whole movie. And that would have been a perfect thing of like he's he thinks it's all over, and he sees that mask on the bed, and it's like and I think the music, I think that piano kicks in again, and he realizes, mm-hmm. oh, this is never going to end unless I, you know, bite the bullet and uh, and you know and uh, explain it all. Yeah, and I mean he, I mean I'll give Cruz the credit for going there with the the breakout, the breakdown scene. I think Nicole yeah. Kidman's breakdowns are better, but he really loses it. And I'm sitting there watching this, and in some way I'm feeling empathy toward the person because I realize that's probably the twelfth time you had to do that that day, <laughs> and I can't imagine what that does to you as a human being. To just I have to take myself to the darkest, saddest thing I can possibly muster so that this crazy man will let me go home. So, you know, because it's three in the morning and I'm tired and I don't, what am I supposed to do? And I, what's great is with, again, they flash to the next morning and this is Nicole Kidman and her good acting can look 30 years older with a cigarette yeah. in her hand than she did 10 minutes before in the bed, you know, where she's gorgeous and alluring mm-hmm. and the red in her eyes and all that. And then they have to do the Christmas shopping and yeah. talk about an awkward conversation 
that goes on. It's, uh, I don't know what I want to do. Forever scares me, but I don't really think we should just bone. Okay. Well, right there in FAO Schwartz, we're going to have this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, that, that, that scene, it's, it, it's a remarkable scene. It's, it's a hell of a way to, uh, end the movie. Every time I watch that movie, I get, for some reason, I get like, uh, I get a rush knowing like, cause you're, you're watching something like this is it. This is, this is the end, not just of the movie. This is the last thing of Kubrick. Um, and it's one of my favorite things about the movie. Uh, it's like, it, it's a good scene and a good ending for a Kubrick is that this idea of the spark has gone out. They realize the spark has gone out of their marriage. That's what's brought them to all this. So Alice's salute, quickest solution of how to fix this is, and it's my favorite thing about the movie that literally the last word in a Kubrick film is fuck. And right. that's, that's, that's just perfect to just, you know, and smash cut to the, that, uh, the, that waltz music. Um, well, it's, I, uh, I want to ask yeah. you something though else that, the, that happens at the end because I've noticed this before and I, I really noticed it this time because I was looking for it. They are paying very little attention to that girl, their daughter, running around. And there's a scene when she's she's delivering lines and I caught it. She, she's not really looking at Tom Cruise. It's almost like she can't look him in the eye to say this, but she's just sort of like, uh, I'll get over it again. Maybe if you really, you know, give it to me good, but I like, will be okay, you know, or whatever. But, and she's just sort of getting through it, you know, but like the little girl walks off with two random people in the background. And I'm like, what, what the hell happens at the end of this? And then I went down the internet rabbit hole about like the, the Illuminati group came and abducted the daughter and that, you know, she was going to wind up being like the sex slave daughter in the costume shop. So I don't know if that's what happens or not, but they do ignore that girl and she walks away with different people. So I'm like, what, what happened there? I, I wanted to see what you thought about that. Yeah. I've heard that theory out, out there. I, I, every time I watch the movie, I don't notice the, uh, the two people, uh, you know, that, that the daughter's not with them. But I, every time I watch it, I do notice they're in a mall in New York city with people bustling all over and their child is not at arm's reach. Um, and we would we would later, we would later see Tom Cruise deal with this situation again in Minority Report, with tragic results. But the main thing is they're really not being the best parents. But I kind of forget about that because it's it's not a bad scene between Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. But yeah, they kind of just I, I think that's I think that's just Kubrick. Um, I think he forgot about that too. I mean, for all we know, it could have been like the girl's parents were like, "We're going home. You've had her enough for the day," <laughs> or yeah. whatever. And they just walked through the shot, and Christian Bale wasn't there to yell at them. So therefore, <laughs> it you know it got. I don't know. I do think that's fun that people notice that, and then it's become this whole internet theory. I mean, you know, Kubrick films have their own like cult of stuff. You oh, yeah. we could talk about the the ones of The Shining, you know, for days or whatever. If you want to do that, you can. <laughs> but this one, I would say for this one to have that end, and again, juxtaposed against where the last line is like, you know, it's really the only thing we need to do. Let's go fuck. And then bing, end of the movie. And I'm like, well, that, wow. That wasn't what I expected to come out <laughs> of your mouth there at the end of this film. But here we are. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a hell of an ending, and like I said, that's 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 why I get a little bit of a of a rush. There's a little like it's a it's a rush, a little bit of sadness of like you know this about how you know this is the end. It's like and there's you know it's weird. It's like I can't say that about too many of the directors. Like I can't say that about Scorsese, but it, there's going to be a time where watching it like this is the last thing he ever uh, he ever did, and that's that's what it is watching that last scene, eyes wide shut. Please don't let that be the Irishman. Please don't let that be the Irishman. <laughs> uh, that's another talk for another day, though. So well, I think we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, Kurt, what are yours for Eyes Wide Shut? 
Well, one thing is for sure, only Stanley Kubrick could make a movie like this and have it win uh, $161 million at the box office. Uh, and that's uh, one of the most satisfying things about Kubrick's career is that he made such bizarre and extreme films that are so uncomfortable to watch, and they were all box office hits after the killing. Uh, in, like Even Barry Lyndon made money. Didn't make that much, but it, it, it made money. It's like the Iron Giant didn't make money. Um, Tom Cruise made this movie a box office hit, I'm sure, but it's a shame he's in it because he, he worsens the, the, the film for me to try and him playing him trying to play an every man. And I don't think he has it in, in this movie. I've seen him playing like average type guys or relatable guys like born on the 4th of July or something, but like not so much in this. Nicole Kidman, on the other hand, gives one of her best. And I think there's a strong argument that it is her very best performance on screen. Um, I think it's a good film. Um, Kubrick never made the same movie twice. So there's nothing from his previous films really in this. It's an adaptation of a book, Trumneville, of course, but it really, it feels like an original film because I've seen a lot of films the first time I saw this and I've seen way more between revisits and I still cannot think of one film before or after this that ever made me go, hey, this reminds me of Eyes Wide Shut. You know, it's not meant as the capper to Kubrick's career, of course, we all know he had no intentions of retiring. So sadly, this film uh, does not feel like the farewell some directors make. It's like, I know Scorsese is going to make other movies, but The Irishman uh, feels like uh, him saying goodbye. Uh, and that's tragedy with Kubrick's death is, you know, uh, maybe he, maybe in his back of his head, he had a last film in mind. Like, you know, before I die, I'll make this film. And but that was not eyes wide shut, of course. Um, so it's too bad he never did get that farewell. However, it is one hell of a way to remember the legendary filmmaker who changed cinema with his work and inspired generations after him with a movie that nobody but Stanley Kubrick could make. So I give it a large popcorn. I got to tell you, Kurt, there's something about this movie. That I go back to what I said in the intro when my wife asked me, is this good? And I said, I don't really know how to answer that because that's such a subjective term. What I will say about this movie is that it is, it is the kind of thing but when you watch it, you will never forget it and you will walk away with questions and want to talk to somebody about it. And they are questions that we'll never have answers. Like we will never know, you know, they, yeah. we could speculate forever. And that's kind of part of the fun of this, you know, like, I've talked about Inception before on Amateur Arturas with Mike. And the fun of that movie is that it does give you answers or it also lets you just make up your own. That's the thing that 2001 does as well. It gives you answers, but it lets you also kind of make up your own if you want to. Same with Clockwork Orange. Um, the, although the Kubrick's movies kind of have endings. The, the Shining definitely get you, leaves you with the, was Jack always there? What's that? You know, I mean, that's kind of the fun twist of that, right? But most of them have an ending. So for him to go out on one that leaves you going like, hmm, what did that mean? Seems perfect for it. It's definitely not one of his best ones, but it's far from his worst, not even close. And aside from Cruz, who we both agree doesn't really work in the movie, Pretty much everything else about this one does, except for that. It, it I, I look at it and I realize that it's it could be so much more. Like I think there's an hour and forty minute tight, taut thriller in this. Yeah. 
but it doesn't really want to be that. It wants to be this existential sociology movie that just sort of has a thriller kind of tucked underneath the couch, you know? <laughs> and so if you, you watch this knowing that there's going to be about 40 minutes of it where you're like on the edge of your seat going, Oh yes, finally. And then you're going to be asked to sit back and reflect on the stupid decisions that this doctor has made and that he should really listen to his rich friend and walk away, you know, put the cards down and just cut them loose while you still can kind of thing. And you also get to see two people, you know, falling apart from each other and trying to grasp at what that means for them and not knowing. And that's very real to life. Sometimes you don't know, you don't know what you want to do next. You know, you just don't want to not do this. And you go with it. And for the way this movie goes and for all of its flaws, and it certainly has a number and we're pulling them out, there's still a lot of it that's very watchable and it's very fun. So I'm going to give it a large popcorn as well, because I do think it's one of those those oddities that is, if you're really into film and if you really are into movies that make you want to talk about them and try to figure out what's going on and hear somebody else's theory on it, watch it with somebody and let them go, okay, what did you think that was about? And, you know, have the, have the discussion. It's definitely a, it's definitely an academic, you know, rigor to do so. Um, and in that case, it's a lot of fun. Kurt, I can't believe it. We finally made it to the end of the Kubrick series here. So I want to ask you rank the 10 Kubrick films that we have reviewed from top to bottom. All right. Well, I'm going to include all of them here. Uh, even the ones we didn't talk about. So from bottom to top, here we go. At number 13, I have uh, Fear and Desire. It's more of a bad student film. doesn't really count, uh, in my opinion. Number 12, Killer's Kiss, uh, Kubrick's second film, uh, which is better. You get to do a little bit more visually. Number 11, I have Spartacus, one of the most famous films he ever did. But I forget Kubrick. When I think of Kubrick movies, I forget about this movie, frankly. It's such a mixed bag with the acting. I love Charles Lawton. Don't like Olivier and that, but... Number 10, I have Barry Lyndon. A lot of people who don't like Marvel movies will tell you this is the best movie Kubrick ever made. Uh, it grows on me each time I watch it. It's certain, no, no matter how you slice it, it's a work of art, but I can't say I enjoy it too much. Uh, number nine, I have Eyes Wide Shut. It gets points for being different, that's for sure, and memorable. Number eight, I have The Killing, where Kubrick really got rolling as a filmmaker. It's kind of like how Seven is like Fincher's, David Fincher's real debut. Uh, number seven, I have uh, Full Metal Jacket. A super dark war movie with black on black levels of psychology happening. Uh, Arlie Ermey, of course, steals the movie of Sergeant Hartman, and it's a performance for the books. Number six, I have Paths of Glory, maybe the one and only film Kubrick ever made that one could describe as heartfelt, a brilliant anti-war film, probably the best movie ever made about World War One, including uh, 1917 from last year. And number five, I have A Clockwork Orange, Kubrick going a little lower budget, after 2001, so he makes his directorial style do most of the heavy lifting. Staggering performance by Malcolm McDowell, who is probably the only actor who could make one feel sorry for Alex DeLarge. And, of course, this movie ruins Singing in the Rain uh, for all eternity. At number four, I have Lolita. An unfilmable film, as I described it back in when we did that episode. Certainly not for everyone. Uh... No matter where you go, it's definitely a mixed reaction, and our podcast uh, shows that. Um, but I, for one, think it's in the same ballpark as twisted movies from today that, like that, that David Fincher w would make. And shockingly funny, I found with Peter Sellers hitting a home run in every scene. Uh, number three, I have 2001: A Space Odyssey, the big one, 
let's say this is definitely the film that defines Stanley Kubrick's career and his style often imitated, never equaled, uh, in my opinion, even by Christopher Nolan trying his best to do so with Interstellar. And number two, with number one and number two, I flip-flop these all the time depending on the day because they're both perfect, in my opinion. But uh, number two, I have The Shining, a haunted house movie by the guys that made Barry Lyndon, and it shows in the best way. Uh, it's up there with the best horror films the way 2001 is up there with the best science fiction films. And number one, my personal favorite, it's kind of always been up there at the top of some of my favorite films ever. This should definitely be in a top 10 for me. Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Stanley Kubrick making a comedy, but since it's him, it's about the end of the world. 56 years old and every joke is as funny today. Um, you can only find that with the, the best of the best comedies from way going that far back, like some like duck soup or something. Uh, my favorite cast Kubrick's ever worked with, with George C. Scott, Sterling Hayden, Slim Pickens, and of course, Peter Sellers as three of the funniest characters in film history. Uh, Sellers alone makes the film worth watching, but the blacker than black comedy of the film and how Kubrick handles the lunacy of nuclear warfare makes it a, a film for the ages. And it's, I think it is my favorite Stanley Kubrick film. All right. So just a review again, bottom to top, you, you did fear and desire killer's kiss. I would agree with you as I would kind of put those at the bottom too. Then you went Spartacus, Barry Lyndon, eyes wide shut, the killing full metal jacket, paths of glory, a clockwork orange, Lolita, 2001, a space odyssey, the shining, and then topping it off with Dr. Strange love or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. So. Excellent oh, yeah. ranking. So here's mine. Bottom for me, um, I leave off Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss because I left them out of this retrospective. We were putting this together all those years ago because yeah. I thought they were they were student films. They were him just kind of learning. Let's go with the the stuff that was you know, for reals or whatever. I always put Lolita at the bottom. I, I mm -hmm. think it was unfilmable. <laughs> I still think it is. I think it's a, it's just bad. I, there, it's not only because it's so uncomfortable. I don't think you think it's good. I don't think I don't think Sellers gives a good performance. I think anybody's good in that. And I just it's just my, the worst thing. Followed by Full Metal Jacket, which I will still argue is half of a great movie, and then tacked onto it as a really shitty war movie um, that he didn't need to make. Like, there's a great uh, essay about what war asks young men to become to be able to do it, and then we go watch him do it, and it just unravels all the everything you just tried to tell me in the first half of this movie. The killing for me comes in next. Um, I like it. I think it's good. Um, I just think it, it's not e even the best in its own genre. Like yeah, there's a lot more movies from the mid fifties, the, the crime drama that maybe have borrowed from it or, 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 or you know, descendants of it, but they do it better. Uh, and it's, it's not that grand, but it's okay. I put Barry Lyndon next. I, I will describe that like I did on the podcast. It is like watching a beautiful painting for three hours. Um, and I think if you watch that movie with that in mind, you can, you can go with it. And there's a good story in there too. I, that's one that honestly, I don't know why the BBC or somebody hasn't tried to mini series that or make that again. You could make that again and it would work and people love period piece stuff. So that one someday they'll, they'll find a way to redo, I think, cause it's a good story. I put Clockwork Orange next. I think it's a very bold film. Um, it's a very hard one to watch. Um, and it, it, and not in the same way the Lolita is for me, but it's a very evocative thing, but it's one that once I watch, I don't really want to talk about with anybody. It's sort of the reverse of eyes wide shut. I put Spartacus next. I think it's right in the middle. 
It's a great sword and sandal flick. I think it's Kirk Douglas doing great Kirk Douglas things when he was at the height of his powers and stuff. It's a fun one to revisit, especially if you like Game of Thrones and you like Gladiator from you know, 20 years ago and stuff, stuff like that. If you're into that, definitely go watch Spartacus at least once. I put Eyes Wide Jet next because, as I've said on this show, it's one that I always leave me wanting to talk about it. And it's definitely worth seeing. Dr. Strangelove comes in next for me. I think it's fantastic. I think it's Kubrick doing something that Spielberg was never able to completely do. Film an outright comedy and make it work. And the thing about comedies is the jokes are so many times they're of the time. And you nailed it, Kurt. Not only do the jokes still work, they're incredibly timely, even for 2020. Go watch that and tell me that doesn't remind you of a lot of things you see you know, out there in the world today. Um, Coming in at number three for me is Paths of Glory, a movie I really discovered as part of this retrospective. And I agree with you, the best World War I movie ever made and an incredibly poignant anti-war movie without beating you over the head about it. You know, like that's the the wild thing about that. I feel like Full Metal Jacket beats that into the ground a little too much. Paths of Glory gets it right. And again, Kirk Douglas just did a powerhouse performance. For me, The Shining comes in at number two. It's one of the greatest horror movies ever made. Um, off of one of the cheesiest books ever written. I'll just say that right now, Stephen King. Uh, and, and his version of it is ugh, not good. But Stanley Kubrick's is awesome. I had a chance to uh, go watch the 4K of that with our friend Nick over at his house on his huge you know, 80-inch television. And I heard things and saw things in that that I hadn't seen before. And I'm like, oh, man, this I mean, that movie, I just rediscover something new every time I watch it. And um, yeah, that one for me. And number one for me, I mean, I know this is going to be cheesy or, or, or obvious, but 2001 A Space Odyssey is one of the greatest films ever made. It's in my top three. It always will be. And I think it is Kubrick doing everything <laughs> that he is known for and is revered for and it's the reason a number of filmmakers exist. It's the reason a certain genre still exists to this day. It built things that, you know, we just, it made us dream about things that could be. And what's funny is how much of it we have done and how much of it is still timely. <laughs> Artificial intelligence doing weird things when we don't want it to is a, a huge academic topic to this day and will continue to be, you know, the algorithm that feeds you, um, information on your Instagram feed, right? I guarantee you, Kurt, you go flipping through your gram feed tonight, you're going to get some Kubrick stuff in there or some, you know, some, a Criterion collection or probably a Scorsese ad, you know, for all the stuff we've talked about because it is listening. <laughs> and I, what 2001 accomplishes as a storytelling device and as a cinematic feat is unmatched, in my opinion. And to have done it with less than 70 lines of dialogue is even more amazing. That's, yeah. that's a filmmaker <laughs> at the height of his stuff and i'll be honest i think kubrick chased that magic the rest of his life and he almost got it again you know with with a couple of things i think the shining is is a brilliantly done thing and it, tom cruise even joked in between breaks on eyes wide shut stanley kubrick was over there recutting the shining because he was still messing with that one when he died he, he's still not satisfied with it um and but I think 2001 was his masterpiece. And so that one for me always ranks out on top, but this has been the longest retrospective in the history of film strip. We've done this thing for years and folks, if you want to find all the episodes, easy thing, I've made it easy for you. I've now put the word Stanley Kubrick's in front of all of these episodes. So if you just go to your podcatcher and you start searching through the film strip feed, just search Stanley Kubrick and they'll all show up for you. So you can download them through because we you know, have done them a couple close together. We'd spread them apart for a year, you know, seven months, things like that. Um, but that way you can get them all together and go back and revisit it and i'm glad we got to do it kurt it's been a lot of fun to do and uh, been really interesting to talk about 
you know, the, the work of one filmmaker in particular for such a long period of time. Oh yeah. It's, it's been, it's been a blast. Absolutely. Kubrick was already a favorite of mine before this. And, you know, examining all of his work so much, I was a little concerned saying, am I going to see things in the shining, you know, it's going to be holes in the shining or not going to dig, uh, Maybe Eyes Wide Shut will look worse when you watch it, when you watch them all in a row like that, like after Paths of Glory. It's like, I made Paths of Glory, made Eyes Wide Shut. But if anything, it just confirms, it just reaffirms that he is, he's in the top five directors. I always, I always say there is, if there's a Mount Rushmore of filmmakers, I don't know who the other three heads would be, but one of them would have to be Stanley Kubrick. Uh, Absolutely. I think we could argue at that Mount Rushmore for, eons for sure but he's mm-hmm, definitely sure. got a uh, got a big chunk on it i mean i think the same way no one argues george washington's on that mountain you know for right. americans as well stanley kubrick's on on the the filmmaker mount rushmore uh, for sure and and always will be and i think it's great that we really only have these things of his i know that spielberg and others you know made ai which i think was going to be the thing that he maybe went out on um i you know i don't think i'm ever going to review that i'll tell you now i wouldn't really recommend it i don't think it's that good i don't know if you've ever seen it i i have and that that that, that movie is a whole other discussion uh, the first time i saw it when i was a kid I was just confused and baffled but actually watching it again after getting into kubrick and noticing Spielberg's style is kind of absent and the, he's like, he's imitating Kubrick's style. I got a lot of time for, 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 uh, for AI. I think it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's one of the, it's one of the weirdest movies, um, uh, Spielberg made. Obviously, I think it would have been, it would have been better and obviously it would have been fascinating to see what Kubrick would have done with some of the concepts and, uh, visuals in that movie. So because everything Stanley Kubrick did was based on something else, generally a book or something like that, that he would option. I, I did a little fantasy booking in my head thinking like, what would be something I would have wanted Stanley Kubrick to adapt somebody's work, you know? And mm-hmm. I thought of one and I wanted to throw it to you and then see if you had one as well. I would have really loved to watch Stanley Kubrick take a Philip K. Dick story and do something with it. I think that would be fascinating work. Because so many of Dick's things have landed in the hands of action directors through the years that didn't really get the subtext. Not all of them, but a lot of them have. And I'm like, man, I would have loved to seen him do something with, with a Philip K. Dick story. Oh yeah. Him mixing like, you know, like, you know, like his movies are pretty like, like 2001 is very heady, but it is in its own way fun and entertaining. And then, you know, depending on you, a person's mood when they watch it. I think it's a, it is a fun movie to watch. It's, it's an experience. So to, so, so to, so to him to adapt, uh, yeah, Philip K. Dick, a real heady kind of science fiction film, like, uh, that, that, that would have been great. Like there's, who knows what he would have done with something like Blade Runner or Blade Runner 2049 or, uh, like Minority Report. That, that's the one. Yeah. Spielberg did it, but honestly, like I would have loved to have seen Stanley Kubrick do Minority Report. Oh yeah. That's like, cause I think Kubrick, I, I mean, uh, Spielberg, he must have made that like right after AI. And he's, there's definitely, there's a, there's flashes of AI and Kubrick style in, uh, Minority Report. Cause it's one of the headiest, as far as the science fiction genre stuff Spielberg's done, that is the most heady, like well written, mature adult themes. Uh, type movie. And I think I, I love what Spielberg did. I think that would have been a good one for Kubrick too. It's a better Tom Cruise movie too. Big time. Yeah. Very fun. Well, Kurt, it's been a blast talking about Kubrick with you. Tell folks how they can follow you and what you've got going on these days. Well, you can find the, uh, the Fabish Factor film podcast. If uh, I guess if you look hard enough 
uh, online. Uh, one of these days, I'll get it back up and running. But you can find me on uh, letterboxd.com, where I do most of my uh, film reviewing uh, in uh, printed word form. And you can also find me on the Fabish Factor Film Group on Facebook, where we try to get into the same kind of discussions that uh, we've had here today. Absolutely. Of course, folks, you can follow the show on social media at Filmstrip Pod on Twitter and Instagram, Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook. Go to your favorite podcatcher. We're on Spotify, Google, Apple. We're on iHeartRadio now, man. We're, we're everywhere podcasts are found. Leave us a positive review. Share the show. We appreciate your support. And thank you so much for joining us on this, this episode and the entire episodes of Stanley Kubrick and really for everything in Filmstrip. I mean, we're near the end of the year here now and I, I don't know of another movie podcast out there that does the variety of things that we have done <laughs> from the lowest budget horror things we can find to big time action movies, Oscar winners, musicals. We've had tons of guests on. We've done Kubrick films, all kinds of stuff. And that just lets you know, you never know what's coming around the corner in 2021 either. So stick with us. We appreciate your support until next time for Kurt. I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to film strip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.